the first sentence of that story goes, I've got 38 aunts called Comfort and all of them are assholes. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everybody. I'm Donnie Walton. And I'm Disha Filia. And this is the Ursa Podcast, where we geek out on all things short fiction. On this podcast, we'll interview authors like today's illustrious guest, Nana Inquieti. We'll discuss collections and stories we love and shine a light on new writers and those who never got their due. But we're not just talk. We're publishers, too. Over at UrsaStory.com, we've created a new home for short fiction from some of today's most thrilling writers, as well as emerging voices, with stories you can read on your phone and audio stories that you can listen to right here in your favorite podcast app. We're doing all of this with support from you. Become an Ursa member today by subscribing in Apple Podcasts or by going to UrsaStory.com slash join. And like I mentioned today, we are talking to Nana Inquieti, the author of Walking on Cowrie Shells. Now, I'm going to give a little bio information on Nana, but then we're going to like get real loose and tell a story about what happened <laughs> when all three of us met up in Miami. Okay, so first of all, let me say, Nana, I love your Twitter bio. First of all, so I have to read that first. Comerican, cultural carnivore, Professor and professional pro slanger. Mm-hmm. Say it with some bass slanger. I love it. Yes. Slanger. Slanger. Yes. So now, okay, now I'm gonna do now I'm gonna do the buttoned up version. Okay. Nana Inquetti is a Cameroonian American writer and AKO Kane Prize finalist whose work has garnered fellowships from McDowell, Vermont Studio Center, U-Cross, and many, many others. Her first book, Walking on Cowrie Shells, was hailed by the New York Times, by Disha Filia, in fact, as a raucous and thoroughly impressive debut with stories to get lost in again and again. Her work features elements of mystery, horror, myth, and graphic novels to showcase the complexity and vibrance of African diaspora cultures and identities. She's a professor of English at the University of Alabama, where she teaches creative writing courses that explore her eclectic literary interests. Nana, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Donnie. Thank you, Disha. (laughs) I'm so appreciative to be here. We are happy to be talking with you again after, as Donnie said, our fun time meeting you in Miami. So let's let's paint the picture, right? Uh-oh. It is. I, I thought it what is. happened happened in Miami stayed in Miami. <laughs> what what had happened was it's, it's, it's all love here. It's all love here. So it is. It is late November. It mm. is a precious window of time mm. between when the Delta variant eases and Omicron came and put its foot on our necks. Right. So that's that's where we're at. It is cold in New York City. It is cold in Pittsburgh. We are looking forward to some warmth, some heat, beaches. We get to Miami. We're excited to meet each other. It rains almost (laughs) the entire damn time it rains, right? And so there's a big party that everyone's excited to go to. It's Mm -hmm. gonna be at the, was, was it the Standard? 
the the rooftop yes. on the standard. We all packed our cute clothes. We're excited. It's still raining. So it was me and you and Dantiel Moniz and Brian Broom, uh, the Kirkus winner for uh, Punch Me Up to Punch the Gods. Punch Me Up to the Gods. Mm-hmm. It was... It was Shayla Seabury, the poet. It was Black Excellence. Yes. It was incredible, mm-hmm. incredible. And we are also excited because Nana and Kwete is coming, right? And in so, the house. In the house. Boom, boom, boom. We're, <laughs> we're crowded under. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we are crowded under this awning, right? Because it is pouring outside and we're trying to stay dry and Nana comes through with her family and they are dressed to the gods. To the nine. I mean, <laughs> they are faces beat. Faces like, beat. So Nana sits with us. We're talking about all things lit world. We're kikiing. We're laughing. We're feeling like kings and queens mm. because like this is our night. Nana's family has gone inside. They're getting their drinks. They're actually like having like a party, a good time. Mm -hmm. When they come back out, you know, Nana says, oh, you know, to her sister, can we take a picture? Can you take a group picture of us? And so we're huddled up and we're trying to get ourselves together and get our poses and everything. And she's taking the picture and changing the lighting and everything. And I think Nana, at some point, you said something to your sister, you know, you know, come on, you're like, finish taking the picture. And your sister said... I'm sorry. I'm not used to hanging out with book nerds like y'all. Mm-hmm. And we <laughs> fell mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we fell out. And we now were like the cool you, kids. But then <laughs> she burst. Listen, she Bubbles busted that burst. bubble. She was like, and let me tell you, I fell in love with you then. I fell in love with your family yes. because it was just, yes. it felt so real and so warm. And um. I was like, I felt like I knew you a little bit more than any bio could say. So we are so happy to have you here. First today. of all, Donnie, let me say that the way you tell the story, I was like, what happened next? You had me riveted. <laughs> <laughs> and I was there. I was like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh no, they did not. <laughs> oh my, oh my gosh. Okay, well now let's let's get into our little conversation. Um, your collection is absolutely stunning oh, and so eclectic and had me laughing, had me thinking. I am just curious about the journey of this collection, you know, from writing it to finding the right publishing home for it, all of that good stuff. Well, you know, the journeys are long and, you know, sometimes the road is rocky, but you have to do it. I mean, I think that the real journey is from Nana and Quetty, age nine, writing little sci-fi slash, you know, Jane Austen mashups, you know, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that was very much my trajectory. It was like a blue stocking young woman who was just really introverted. And most of my besties were in books and that I always knew that I was going to write stories. So that, um, that like, you know, fast forward many, many, many years and me finally privileging that, that writing self and allowing for myself to kind of put my voice in the world. That's the journey, right? You know, you know, you, you go to school, you're a good daughter of immigrants. So you're going to go to law school, you're going to get the safe job. And, but then finally making sure that my family was okay, that these very 
fancy folks you were talking about, you know, have had all gone through school and were educated and then finally going back and saying, hey, what about that book I've always wanted to write? What about that book that I have in me? It's my time now, you know? That's really beautiful. Oh, thank Um, you. And you kick off the collection with a lovely and, and very specific dedication to your parents. And so in what ways did your family contribute to the spirit and wisdom of this collection? I mean, my family, as you know, as that, as Donnie's anecdote, you know, reveal, we're incredibly close knit. We are very, um, they're very, very interested in the world. They've got ranges people. And it's just like being in that place where you had a family that allows for you, you to be all your multiple selves to be Whitman-esque and contain those multitudes was wonderful. I grew up in a house with my father and my mother always having books around us. We always had a library, a space where, you know, that was kind of privileged. It was like a kind of like the holy of holies, you know. So I was reading books from a very young age that might have been way too much, too inappropriate for my young tender years. But, you know, I was like, I've been there, you know, (laughs) but, you know, it was just one, a wonderful kind of like inculcation and introduction to reading and just reading books, you know, with literature with a capital L to, you know, my brother, you know, my brother actually like read the encyclopedia from A to Z when he was young. So that's the kind wow. of family, you know, family I grew up in. We were, we we're just really privileged reading and, and that kind of space for the imagination. So yeah, that's my family and my mom and my mom was in pops. You know, I knew that, it, you know, that book was going to be dedicated to the, the very beginning. Cause I knew that like they were the kind the blueprint for, you know, for that. love talking about point of view. I mean, you and I both went to Iowa. We talk about point of view all the time. And I actually, I disagreed with a lot of our professors about what they had to say about point of view. But what I want to say is that I really enjoyed the stories in the collection that offered, if even for a paragraph or two, another voice Mm. or another perspective. Mm. I mean, I'm thinking about Night Becomes Us where we get not only Zainab's perspective, but for that one short section, those couple paragraphs, the perspective of the the teenage suicide bomber mm. who kills her mother. Mm. Or in The Devil is a Liar, you're alternating between uh, the perspectives of temperance and, and glory, her mother. Um, how do you know when a story is calling for a dip into another point of view? Is that a decision that you make from the start or is it something that evolves as you're writing? I mean, I think it, it it changes from story to story. I knew that in The Devil is a Liar, I was going to be telling these like dual perspectives because this conversation and this relationship between the mother and daughter, Temperance and Glory, was incredibly, it was central to their narrative. Like how would they navigate their generation gap and their kind of levels of spirituality and come to a place of understanding? So I knew I would kind of be moving between the two of them like a dance um with um that that suicide bomber like telling Hanifa's perspective and like become Mm. us I was very much aware that I didn't want her to be vilified I didn't want her to become a place like you know either this tragic figure or this or like the person who like you know was just like a kind of soulless killer I wanted us to understand why she was in that space at that kind of climactic moment so it just kind of 
intuitively I just knew I had to kind of enter her space and and you are correct sometimes like you know those craft classes they tell us oh we can't do that kind of head hopping you can't switch POVs like mid you know story mm-hmm. like that that's like yeah. you know verboten and there's all these kind of huge like you know do not enter signs around certain choices and you just have to kind of go with your gut and and take that kind of narrative leap and see if your readers can go with you. So I'm glad it landed for people and that it wouldn't, it didn't feel dissonant. And the people, you know, kind of that space at that time allowed her humanity to be shown, even though she was soon gone from the page and from that world. And, you know, this idea of doing what you want to do, mm-hmm. you know, and this the the boldness, it just comes through the entire collection um, and even in, in some non-text ways, right? So you have included illustrations, photos, and graphics um, in some of the stories like Rain Check at Momocon and Schoolyard Cannibal, and then even the diary font in Dance the Fire Dance that, you know, breaks up the narrative there. Mm-hmm. How, did, um, how did these elements become part of the collection? I was very aware, I, you know, honestly, one of the, the, the great thing about like, you know, going through and having and doing this book later in life is that I had so much moxie. Like I've always known that what I wanted to do yes. and been very like, you know, singular minded. But by the time, you know, there are no, zero Fs to give by the time, you know, you're like, you, you, you're, 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 you're grown. You're just like, and this is how we're going to do this, <laughs> you know, um, and you get to, you know, you're used to honor your own choices and you, you just want to have your say. I was like, if I'm going to be doing this book, I wanted to be gonzo. I wanted to do all the things that I needed to do on the page. I knew that, you know, I can't be, especially like we're talking about moments of Ekfraxis and, and like the graphic novel. I'm, I'm doing a whole story at, at Comic-Con. Of course, there's going to be a graphic element. Of course, there's got to be a comic book page. If I could like, you know, have a whole anime, you know, technology does not exist. But one day, if I could have like video popping up from that book, I would have had the, uh, you know, the cartoon animation going. <laughs> I know that that I knew I was going to do that. I knew that I was going, you know, when I was looking at fonts and they sent me initial drafts and it didn't have that kind of humanist handwriting font, I, you know, I was like, okay, now we have to go back and do this because, and I just researched fonts because it, even in my early, like, you know, non, non-production valued way, I was adding those elements and they were just integral to the understanding of the story because that's what our world looks like we're you know all of our senses are stimulated we see we smell we taste we hear you know so if i could add you know have music lyrics in there and with references to music references to food and like you know have those visuals which are very much part of the graphic world and very much part of like schoolyard canna which is banable which is interrogating the use of images to make certain people feel small I, I'm going to do that, you know, mm. so. You, used, you actually used a word that I have seen a lot, but I I don't know what it means. What is ekphraxis, you said? Yes, yes. That's basically just having the use of like, you know, I mean, more formally when, the, you know, when people were going to, let's say you're going to a museum and you're writing a poem in response to to a, a piece that you see. And then maybe that that moment, you're you're literally kind of doing a one-to-one ratio, like representation of that that particular art form, but now in narrative form, right? But this, but for this, like, you know, I'm just referencing like any moment where like the image 
often came first, right? Any moment where I'm in conver- uh. where my text is in conversation with like visual elements. So yeah, I I love that, and I also find that I I'm doing that as well when I'm writing. If I'm you know when I was researching Opal and Nev, looking at photography Absolutely. that really inspired Absolutely. things that happen, and they it's there's a sort of symbiosis between you know a song and an image and and all of that. Um, and this segues very well into my next question, which, you know, there's a lot of playfulness in your work mm-hmm. with form, with humor and with the pop culture references, which, you know, I love. <laughs> and so I always love when I feel like the writer is having fun on the mm-hmm. page. And I wondered which story did you have the most fun writing? Like what, you know, when you were sitting typing and you were sort of making yourself laugh or, or anything like that? It's so interesting. So many people have like referred to the humor in all of the pieces, even in the most dark and kind of like they said, somebody was saying like, I go from the comedic to profound. I don't realize that because that's who I am naturally. I've got a kind of dry, snarky <laughs> humor, humor, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm, you know, my, and I live, I come from a family that loves to laugh. So like, once again, that idea of containing the multitudes, like if I want like, you know, you know, the narratives to reflect all the kind of, you know, facets of the human condition, humor is one of them right so sexy times is one of them so there's sexy moments and there's fun moments and there's moments of horror and pain and pathos you know all i just want that full you know evolution or that full movement through all those type of ranges and registers of expression so making me laugh out loud i would say I, I don't want to say her name because she she who shall not be named in um it takes a village to come some some say like their girl the protagonist and that she was just very she has so much moxie I say that she's got like the disposition of an Uzi because she comes there not unapologetic she's like and you best believe you know that's her energy she's got that kind of rah rah girl energy that you know you're just like wow are we doing that out here really really you know and um <laughs> so i would say she had me in shock uh, do a couple of shock chuckles you know every once in a while you know so it's only afterwards really that i realized that, that sometimes that those hu- that humor comes through but because it's like so natural to who i am as a writer like i'm mm-hmm. not always thinking it when i'm doing it but somebody will tell me oh that had me laugh out loud and i was like oh okay i see i can see that you know <laughs> And actually, It Takes a Village, some say, was one of my favorites Mm, in the collection. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, I loved every single story, but um, if I had to choose some favorites, that was definitely one Mm -hmm. of mine. It's satirical. I am like a sucker for satire. Mm -hmm. And as I noted in my review in The Times, this particular story is set against the backdrop of social media celebrity culture. Mm -hmm. And we witnessed this you know, unlikely collision of Fendom, which is financial domination kink for you vanilla folks there. And, I have to say, uh, I must be vanilla because I did not, I was like, oh, I'm learning something today. Okay. Don't, don't, don't ask me how I know. And so, tell it, tell it. So, is this that kind of podcast? So we, you know, yes, it is. It is. We go there. We it. go there. So you pull together Fendom and uh, the murky business of international adoption. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite lines is when the white adoptive mo- mother of this Cameroonian child uh, observes, people think Bono and Bill Gates are supporting the continent. They have no idea it's us. L- listen, 
the way I cackle. (laughs) (laughs) I could hear that white woman saying that line. Mm. Like, and that's the thing about like so much. We were talking about this in our last episode. Mm. Like in these days, satire, you know, runs real close in speculative fiction Mm. because the world and the state that it is, it just feels kind of real sometimes. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. know, it feels Mm -hmm. a lot, you know, very realistic. You're like, yeah, this is satire, but it's real close. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just love how throughout the collection, there are moments where you bring irreverence and nuance to some sensitive subjects, including the tensions between Africans and Black Americans, Mm. as you do, for example, in Dance to Fire Dance. Mm. Um, You also take that up again with a lot of tenderness in Schoolyard Cannibal, Mm. where we meet a Black girl of Cameroonian descent who is mistreated by her black American peers. And as I was reading, I was like, ooh, this story can go a lot of different directions. Mm. What were some of your considerations as you were crafting um, Schoolyard Cannibal? I would say, first of all, like, you know, thank you for your comment on the satire. Because I feel like, you know, we are living in this dystopian moment. Like, you know, and everything is just, truth is way stranger than fiction these days. Um, mm-hmm. Very much so. And like for Schoolyard Cannibal, I think... And with all my stories, like, you know, it was incredibly important for me that, like, you know, I just present stories and human beings in moments that feel as authentic as possible, that feel like real human beings, real, real concerns writ on the page, right? And that story, it was, honestly, it almost didn't make it in the book because it was something that was very tender to me. That was, it was a story I came and made my way to only after reading, you know, Claudia Rankine's Citizen and and having that kind of language and understanding the the idea of like, you know, of how to kind of tell tales of microaggression, tell tales of feeling lack, you know, in a society. And I almost didn't put it in there because very much so because I did not want it to be a space of like, you know, perpetuating tensions between Africans and African-Americans. I didn't want people to say, mm-hmm, and, and, you know, and just be like, and, and not see other perspectives. So when I'm writing this, those perspectives, as you can see, I kind of kind of go between like you know trying to understand like you know why are those tensions there you know i'm writing into them and depicting Mm -hmm. them i did not make them i did not invent them you know they're they're things that i've seen in my life growing up you know moments where you know like african identity was very much you know not popular nobody wanted to be african white folks didn't want to be african chinese and people nobody wanted to be african so and Mm -hmm. but that's like you know that i that's the kind of the the story of unfortunately black identity kind of writ large right you know nobody wants the the struggle and the pain they only want like you know when you're when your things are on and popping and flossy right so like i did not want that Mm -hmm. to be out there i honestly at one point i literally said this i was like to my white editor i was like i don't want i don't know if i want white folks to see this you know i don't people are not doing our knowing our mm. business our dirty exactly. laundry doing our dirty mm-hmm. laundry yeah. i don't know if i want them up in our business like this <laughs> you know i want this something to be something that you know that but i did want it to be something that sparked conversations and if somebody can have a conversation mm-hmm. and like you know kind of bridge that gap then let it be that let it be doing that kind of work out in the world so that like you know the next time you say something out of pocket to somebody about somebody who has a different, you know, heritage from you, you're just like, oh, why am I really saying this? Let's interrogate that. Have we now been pitted against each other with these kind of false dichotomies that don't really exist? You know, like you think, okay, oh, African-Americans have this it easy because they've had this and, and you're feeling you, or that Africans have it easy because they have this. I'm just like, who's really like running the, you know, the things, you know, and like, what is it, what is gained from like, you know, us being in kind of 
opposition like that. So, mm. so that was why I ended Who up benefits? It. It, it ain't Ooh. us. Mm. It right. does not. <laughs> it does not benefit us. So I'm like, I, and I kind of, I literally grew up in that space, right? I grew up like, you know, I was in, grew up in Southeast DC and all my teachers were black. So I, and you know, all my, you know, everybody was like, you know, African American. And then I go to, you know, to Cameroon, West Africa. And I guess the rest of my, you know, high school years spent there. So those black spaces very much are inform who I am as a person. My identity is, you know, people who raised me up for, from those two cultures. So every time I saw that kind of dissonance and that like, you know, level of kind of pushing against to get each other, I was just like, but I'm, I am, the, I am because you guys are. So I've never wanted that to be mm. our portion, you know, so. Mm. Thank you. Thank you so much mm. for that. Yeah, that was incredible. And it made me also think about, Dishi, you mentioned this story as well as part of that question, Dance the Fire mm. Dance, where you have the heroine who is, and correct me if I say this wrong, called Akata. Mm-hmm. Is, is it, yes, is that, yeah, did I say a, it correctly? You, could, oh, you, wanna, you wanna put a little uh, twang in it like you did before. Akata. She's Akata. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Akata. Mm-hmm. Akata. Which, can you explain what that is uh, to the reader, to the listeners? Yes. So she's African. Uh, is, you know, so she's, her father is from Brooklyn, New York. He's African-American. And then her mother is from Cameroon, West Africa. And Akata is, you know, a, a nickname for, like, you know, African-Americans. And that, like, you know, I've seen that through all through West Africa. So I used to think, you know, as everybody thinks is oh, one thing like those slangs only come from their culture um but it was initially i, I believe it was kind of like neutral in this as, as an explanation but then later on like i kept on hearing it so many times in words of derision like you know used with a little bit of the kind of like mm. eh, those akata so it was one of those things where i always found myself having to do this kind of ambassadorial duties like really now is, is that what we're doing like you know so and that moment, right. like, you know, when I'm having, you know, um, when I'm having her speak, Catherine speak about, like, this is my, my background and you are here because my parents, you know, Akatas did this for you to have a place in this country. That is something that I've, those are conversations I've had. So, you know. Well, I've, I fell out at this part because, like, you treat the subject with a lot of tenderness, yes, but also mm-hmm. humor in the collection. And there's a moment where the uh, protagonist of the story is at this wedding and she's caught the eye of Philip, who I think is sort of an eligible mm-hmm. bachelor and, and, and he likes her very much. So he says to her, actually, my sister warned me about the dangers of American girls. His voice is whispery against the coil of my ear. He pulls me close. Did she now? I smile at him over my shoulder as I settle into him. I may be only half American, but I rub that half against him for all <laughs> I'm worth. I said, okay, girl. Okay. Yes. I love that. That was it. a moment. I love that. <laughs> that was a moment. So, yeah, like the sexy times, you know, with your Fendom knowledge that <laughs> came out of nowhere. <laughs> yes. Yes. Listen. I'm telling on myself today. Ain't no we, shame. Ain't we no love shame. the sexiness. We love mm-hmm. the juiciness. We love, we love it all. And once again, just yes. part of the human like existence and condition, like, you know, everything. I wanted everything to be in there. I wanted to feel tender. I wanted to feel raw. I wanted to feel like, you know, sexy when it needs to be sexy. Or I wanted to be satirical when it needs to be satirical. All just, you know, just to kind of show the, the fullness of their, of these characters. And for the collection as a whole, you know, looking back, what do you wish you could go back and say to pre-publication Nana about the process? Oh, my goodness. It's going to be all right. (laughs) You know, (laughs) 
you know? So like yeah. a rap song over here. You know, I think that you feel like, you know, it feels like a Herculean task just kind of getting a book to, you know, just to an agent and then to an editor and a publish, you know, house that you can really, that really gets behind your work. And then after that, there's a whole long period of editing and you don't even know when it's going to, you know, when, when are you going to actually launch this book into the world? But once it's there, it's just like that mother who feels like she's been pregnant, like for 22 months, it's only been, you know, like you're just like, oh, thank you. It's, it's going to be okay. And once you do it, especially because I'm a debut author, once you've done it, it just just makes you feel like this is not nothing is insurmountable i can do this again and again and again and i look forward to that process so that's awesome how does a story typically start for you Oh, I'm very, very voice driven. So I call it almost being like possessed or, or having like somebody come and say, uh, whisper in your ear and tell you the juiciest tale. And you kind of have to follow them because they're, they're kind of like walking off into the night and you're just like, I don't know where they're taking me. That dark alley looks scary, but I want to hear the rest <laughs> of this story. And that's what happens. I'm very voice driven. So these characters come to me, you know, even like, you know, my par- first paragraphs are pretty much, they go unchanged because once I get that voice in my head, it's almost like they just immediately just sitting next to me and you know and met at the smoky bar and they're walking me down the street and you know we're gonna have our time together and they're just like okay and the moral of the story and then they're just like bye and then it's interesting so that's how it happens like i'm very very voice driven that sounds thrilling to be like led down or led into some cool place or I love it. And then in terms of revision, how quickly do you sort of write your first draft? And then how many revisions do you typically do? So it's interesting because my, my stories ended up going through the more formal review process because like some of these stories were written for Iowa and written for a workshop environment. So you'd end up like at least getting one revision kind of cycle done with like people who are very interested in kind of like, you know, helping you grow as a writer. So um, the stories that I wrote outside of the workshop um, process, like, you know, I would say like I would do like one or maybe two, you know, versions of them. But like the voices, you know, very much stay the same. The first packets very much stay the same. Um, I think what happens often, you know, like when you get to an editor and what have you, they have you do this kind of, you know, yes, sometimes you kill darlings, but often they're just asking me to kind of linger and stay in a moment and to kind of like expand on you know, a moment, a scene, like, so that whole Findom section that you loved, uh, Disha, it was not there initially, you know, um, it was, I, I was actually like, you know, like there's, I think a previous incarnation of this story was like published and it was like that version had, um, you know, just, we just went from her talking about like, you know, feeling like she was not, not being seen in her American high school. And, but, and she, next thing you know, we hear about her, you know, her, that she's done certain things to get money. Like, you know, she's done her, like, the, you know, comely cleaners, like the worked, I think the, the semi-topless nude, semi-nude um, cleaning service to get money. But I really, like, went back, you know, at the advice of my editor and just kind of sat in that moment and, like, watched her process, like, watch her kind of empire building, you know, to kind of get to her version of the American dream because she's just, like, by any means necessary, I'm going to be who I was meant to be. You know, if, if America is transactional in this way, I'm going to figure out how to game this system and not get played by it. So that I just spent more time expanding upon something that I might have just kind of mentioned in the first incarnation. So, 
And I actually have, I have a follow-up question um, to something you said. Um, question for any listeners out there who are readers, but maybe not writers. What is the difference between a story developed in workshop environment versus outside of it in your mind? You know, it's interesting. I know people, there's a, a lot of kind of discussion about MFA or NYC, people who are kind of like issuing like, you know, workout shop spaces and, you know, worried about that they, they kind of have like a kind of flattening effect and that writers won't get to be themselves. But I, I never experienced that once again, like I said, because I was by the time I was like, you know, really privileging my writing, it was I was pretty, pretty sure that what I, I, I had a voice, I knew what I wanted to say. And like, you know, and you just you learn it, like not everybody's necessarily gonna be your ideal reader. You know, even that ideal reader might not be that person who's saying they love everything, you know, so that ideal reader that you want is that person who loves things, and they, and they see possibilities and help you get where you need to go in terms of expanding as a writer and growing as a writer. So I was, I felt very fortunate being in that kind of workshop experience. Um, my stories that were done out of the side of workshop experience, I think that my main problem was like this idea of being, you know, I'm a, like I said, I'm like a good immigrant daughter. I have way too much like perfectionist tendencies. So sometimes it, I have to get out of my own way and allow things, let them go and not say, oh, I'm just going to revise this again, you know, or, or like, let's put it out into the world. I think that being in those kind of spaces, mm -hmm. that privileged literature, it just makes you, you know, just do things faster, you know, you're just like, okay, because other people have given you that cosign and that DAP and you're just like, okay, I don't have to be afraid. Let me just go ahead and put this out in the world. You know, you see your, you see your colleagues mm -hmm. around you doing that, your peers around you doing that. They read your work, you know, and you're just like, okay, this is, this is doable. You know, it makes the whole process feel like feasible. It demystifies mm -hmm. it, you know? I also have a process question for you. How do you know when a story is finished? Oh, so this is going to sound so weird because like I said, like, you know, my stories, like those stories where they're very voice driven and like, I feel like it's like they're, they're like summer love, you know, it's like how it's telling somebody, like, how do you know that fling is over? <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> how do you know? It's just, I feel like you, you have that wonderful time and you know that like that, you know, there's, it, that it was a season, right? So that's typically what happens to me. Like, you know, I feel like my, my characters tell me that, you know, they literally go end scene and like, you know, they've told me all they have to tell me. And not some people don't agree because some people, you know, be like, oh, no, no, this could be a whole novel. And I was and I, and I know in my gut, no, no, it couldn't. We were done. Mm. You know, that, you know, that character has told me what they wanted me to tell, tell me about their life. And then like, you know, and then you just say farewell and you just like feels bittersweet. And like, you love being in that world. You love being in that space. You like loved hearing them talk. But once they're done telling you their story, they're done, you know? And I think some people could benefit from that. Uh, novelist. <laughs> <laughs> The shade. shade. Oh. Oh. <laughs> I'm sweating over here. <laughs> But, the, oh. but you know how it is. Sometimes, you know, it's like, I feel like there's a compactness. Sometimes people go, like, they're just like, they're going on longer than they, you know, when the party is done and like, you know, like everybody else has left <laughs> and gone home and you ready to take your shoes off and they're still hanging around trying to have, a, you know, a, <laughs> I, that's not, you know, that's a, just a joke. <laughs> I say that that's, I feel like that's one of the, the, the benefits. Like for me, I, I've just intrinsically and instinctively known like, okay, like, they're my, when my, my characters are done with me, they're done with me. Like, you know, I don't feel like I have to kind of to keep things going artificially, you know? So. Yeah, I, I could use some of that. Mm. Like, I need a little bit more. Oh, of my that God, Donnie. I, are you feeling? No, I do. Do not. I was not even talking about you. I'm just making fun. No, 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 no. <laughs> but see, I, I feel like 
like I felt a little indicted, oh but God. you know, no, I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> kidding. No, but it's it's true. Like when you're saying that you have a gut instinct mm-hmm. for when the party is over, mm-hmm. I don't really mm-hmm. like. I keep and and. I love short fiction. And one of the reasons why I love short fiction is because I find it very difficult Mm. to write short fiction because I don't know when the end is. And I often keep stuffing the world full of things Mm. and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger instead of kind of, you know, at a manageable scale where it can end. Mm. You know, I just keep opening new doors and threads. Mm. And um, so uh, I greatly admire the stories in this collection. And like, I feel very satisfied when I reach the end of each one. And I think that has to do with your gut feeling for when for when the party is over. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I'm so, you know, honestly, you know, I feel like that's a wonderful thing to say because I feel like, you know, I appreciate that, like, you know, where I landed allowed people to feel like something is expanded. They've gained something, even if they don't mm-hmm. have all the answers. I mean, that, I feel like that's that reflects life. Right. Like, I feel like we get to the end of a character's story. It's a short time with them and they, they might not have everything figured out, but you can see there a nod in that direction or there's something that feels like, you know, Uh, like there's a sense of closure for you and that's all I want for readers to gain when they read I thought maybe we could like let's do a little bit of an inspirational moment Mm -hmm. um, and do a flashback to your first ever short fiction publication Mm -hmm. I mean I think we all write for a while before we even think about sending our work out and think about where we're gonna place it but you know just tell us the year and the publication and what the story was and and what it was like to find out that it was going to be published oh this is a very what happened was you know so <laughs> so let me do some caveats, right? So there's, you know, there's the first time that my work was published. And then there's the first time where I was actually paid for my work being published. Mm. That felt like, oh, I have arrived. I'm grown now. I'm a grown writer. I'm out here in these publishing streets. And I felt like, you know, and that was with, you know, um, The Baffler, It Takes a Village, some say, where I got a, tra- a check, you know, I got some, you know, spending some pocket money. And I felt like I'm a professional, you know. And that was in, that was just as recently as 2019. And I will say this about me too, as well. Like, I, you know, some of these stories were done at different, various mo- moments in my life. I have stories that didn't make it to this collection, but were finished earlier. But when I felt like I was actually now starting to submit work and then having getting a paycheck for work and feeling, okay, this is something that's I can make a life around, that was the first time. And that story is the you know, it takes it was it takes a village, some say that <laughs> that you all, you know, was the you know, like the capsule, like the like the um the opening story of the, my book and was a finalist for the twenty nineteen Kane Prize. So I feel like, you know, it stood me in good stead in terms of making me making me feel like I'm grown now and I can honor my writing. And so what is it, you know, writing that story and the success of that story that sparked the idea to develop a collection? So there's some other stories that came before that, right? But it was that that one was the one that it, it was interesting. Like, you know, as you know, like this is what happens. Like you, you have other stories that go out in the world. Like I had like um, another story that was published, but it was published in-house by like our school journal. It's like, it, it doesn't really feel like you got that co-sign from the world, like the publishing world but large or from like, you know, like you feel you're like you're still kind of finding your bearings. But like this one, you know, was... Um, the story that made me feel like, okay, I should 
go ahead and like, you know, honor all these other stories that have come before it that I feel like are ready to be part of a collection. It very much so like set me on my way. So, yeah. Like, you know, can you talk us through the process of getting an agent, getting the deal and that sort of thing? Oh, yeah. Like, so as Donnie knows, Iowa is interesting for that because they actually have these agents kind of like, I don't know where they're flying in on some special like kind of Avenger, Avengers jet or something. Like, I don't know. But they, they fly in and come talk to us. And and that and it's not until like I started teaching other MFA programs that I realized that it's such a privilege because they'll have agent talks with us and they'll spend time just like, you know, do a whole day where they're just trying to find the next big thing. You know, it's a weird kind of bittersweet thing because there's like, you know, the poets are there looking at you like oh where are our agents and it's like oh crap yeah and then you're also looking at like you know um you have a you have a bad agent you know you're not don't necessarily you don't necessarily have to feel the feel your power yet so you're just like kind of like, oh i hope they like me and you you don't learn you don't know that you're not supposed to, that's not where you're supposed to coming from that place yet so um yeah but my agent came to um to iowa and one of the reasons why i said i went with that um my agent was because I was interested in having an agent that would allow me to well, this agent. They're, they're headquartered in um, in L.A. And I felt like, OK, they would allow me now to kind of like spread my wings and not be like, oh, we don't do television writing. We poo poo that, you know, because I was just like, oh, what if I want to get into a graph graphic novels or I want to do this? I just wanted to be with people who allowed me that kind of breadth of expression. Right. And also he was the only person who talked about money. And while other people were, mm. were clutching their pearls and just like, well, I never, it just, you know, we're all about the art, you know, I was like, I'm a practical African girl. I want to know how I'm about to hit, how pay my bills. What does this whole industry look like? You know, what, how do you kind of sustain like, you know, practically a writing career. So he talked about money. Mm -hmm. He talked about the, um, the um, writing industry being overwhelmingly white. So he was very real talk and I was here for it. So that was why I chose my agent. And then I ended up like, you know, choosing my publisher because, you know, he wrote me this wonderful love letter to my book and he had a vision for the book. And I was just like, that's so now when I had other, my, you know, my book went to auction and there were other agents who were interested. I was like, where's that love letter though? Where's that love letter? <laughs> what, what, I mean, it's a, honestly, this, I literally did this. Like, you know, yeah. like people, there was another, uh, you know, that they offered me way more money. And I was just like, but where's that, where's that vision though? Where's that vision statement? I need to kind of understand, like, you know, cause it's more important. It was more important for me. The money is wonderful. But I feel that that can come like, you know, and but like if I didn't honor the honor artistry, if I didn't honor and work with somebody who had a kind of a vision, a way of thinking, a real love to the book for the book and knew what I was trying to do and allowed me to kind of even grow even within that kind of like editorial space. Then what was the point? What have I been doing all this for? Why did I leave my right. job in Brooklyn to move to Iowa? You know, I didn't never, you know, right. like what are the, those choices I was making were so that I could honor the, the creation of this art form. And like, you know, as much as I love my agent talk about money, I was just like, sometimes you have to put that practicality inside and say like, hey, I, it's very important for me that, you know, that all of this kind of sacrifice and this whole, this whole journey that that little nine year old me has made till now is honored and that I'm working with somebody who does so. 
And that was what I got mm. from my um, Steve um, Woodward at Grey Wolf. You know, he just got it. You know, I was like, yeah, you never know. Because you're just like, how is this Midwest guy <laughs> going to get, you know, like little African me? But he was just like, go go more Gonzo. He was just so, Disha, he gave me that. You get, he gave you Findom. He gave you the, t- <laughs> <laughs> he gave me the title for Ray Check at Momocon. He was like, that whole section was like, I just went into blur. I went blurty, even blurtier. Because sometimes like my problem is like, you know, or not even a problem, but like things that I'm interested in, I'm very interested in them. I'm geeky i'm nerdy so but i'm just like oh nobody wants to hear me rant about like you know black x-men and you know but he's like do that girl do it do it go in he's like go in go ham so now all of a sudden there was i'm I'm adding in all the stuff that i you know i had i thought i had gone gonzo before because you know but i had gone to a certain point i was just like ah let me just let the lay person enjoy this but i was like now i'm making all these marvel references and now like you know you know i'm going hadouken energy burst stuff that's very much part of my own very nerd black nerd blurtiness but i wasn't like you know i wasn't necessarily privileging all that but he was like go go hard or go home and i was like okay you do it is i love mm-hmm. it that's so important to have a team behind you who just wants you to be the most mm-hmm. you that you can possibly be absolutely and i think too that like i love the way that you talk about you know finding your agent because i think in publishing the relationship between the writer and the publishing industry is so skewed mm. and writers often forget that your agent works for mm-hmm. you oh <laughs> listen that's what we need to do a whole show Tell on it. that like i know yes. it's not unique to short story writers but i mean that would be a public service, but anyway, yeah, yeah. Don't get me and started. that is, it, it really was a benefit and a privilege of you know being at Iowa and have the agents and sometimes a couple editors come to meet with you because it level sets that expectation of of what you need to be looking mm-hmm. for professionally. So yes, I'm glad y'all talked about money. I'm glad that your editor had you putting in, you know, all that stuff that you were maybe like a little hesitant to do, but was truly reflective of of the direction that you wanted to go. Yeah, very much. So I was, you know, yeah, I was just fortunate because I can't and it's something that I I pass on. You're talking about like, you know, doing a whole business stuff. I like I do all these business of writing conversations with my students every every single time I I can, because I I feel like all that stuff is cloaked in mystery. And, you know, people are just so happy to be here. You're just like, oh, Mm -hmm. if I have to if I can do like some wizard, like, you know, opening behind the curtain, you can see, okay, this is not so scary. This is how things work. This is what makes this industry tick. I'm going to do that, you know. What's your favorite story collection or collections that you've loved recently? So it's interesting, right? I'm only now getting a chance to start reading for pleasure again. I was just like, oh, Lord. Like, especially <laughs> like, you know, working on my own book and you know, trying to like, you know, you birthed that book, baby. And that's a whole thing. You know how that mm-hmm. is, Donnie. Mm-hmm. You, it was like that whole year. It was like a lost year. <laughs> it was just like, <laughs> oh, yeah. it was just like all I was doing was teaching and editing and then teaching and launch and, mm-hmm. and touring, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm only now like, you know, getting back to just reading for pleasure and everything. So I know this is going to seem like fantastic service but i'm totally reading Disha's book right now i am so behind the eight ball but it is what it is like i literally like they, like you know when you're in the 
when you're in the middle of doing your own book, you're like, okay, nothing else can, you know, you're in that space. And then COVID, right. you're in the middle of a global pandemic, you're just trying to live. <laughs> so it's just like, so mm-hmm. I'm really now like just enjoying and relishing, like just reading again. But, you know, if you want to go back into the archives, we're, we're talking Octavia Butler's Blood Child, you know. You know, mm. we're talking ZZ Packers, uh, drinking coffee elsewhere. We're talking, you know, drown, yes. like, you know, I mean, and then I have like all my people, like when I think about like somebody who like made me go like, oh, is that, can we do that? Is that really it is? Like, like my little feminist spidey senses were just tingling when I first read um, James Tiptree Jr., a.k.a., you know, Alice Sheldon, a.k.a. Rakuna Sheldon, who was in her life a spy, an artist, you know, like a, just oh, wow. lived all the lives and then wrote all these stories, at, you know, and was universally thought to be a man for many, many years and was having like long correspondence relationships with several of her uh, speculative fiction counterparts of the day. And people were just like, oh, wow, what a robust masculine voice she has, uh, he has. And it was a woman all along, you know. And so wow. Because we can know, do anything. <laughs> yes, we can. Exactly. Tell it, tell it. Come on. <laughs> somebody, needs, somebody needs that word today. On today. <laughs> as we let's take it to church. Somebody needs that word on that, today. That word on, today. <laughs> on today. Somebody needs to understand that but she really kind of like you know interrogated the idea about of ideas of gender and just like mm-hmm. you know wrote from this very interestingly you know like, you know people now can see like a really kind of like skewering like toxic masculinity which is deliciously done while all while writing beautiful sentences and writing you know very interesting kind of like futurescapes so yes I'm, I'm here for all that so speaking of beautiful sentences what's the best sentence you think you've ever written so I'm, I'm going to tell you like the best sentence that, you know, like that I've ever written is always going to be the last sentence I wrote because I'm always very, you know, I'm like a perpetual motion machine. I want to keep moving forward and writing more and more interesting things on the, on the page. So I don't want to rest on my laurels and just like, oh, 10 years ago, that sentence, you know, was so wonderful. And just like, I will never top that. I don't feel that, you know, so I want to stay in the now. So I'm working on a story called All the Comforts of Home. And the last sentence, I, you know, the first sentence of that story goes, I've got 38 aunts called Comfort and all of them are assholes. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, because that's that's a that's a, an African naming tradition. Like, I remember yes. the first time I met someone yep. named Innocence. Yep. So com- yep. Comfort. So say that mm-hmm. sentence again. Now that we know Comfort is a, a name. Go ahead. Yep. I've got 38 aunts called Comfort and all of them are assholes. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. <laughs> I cannot wait to read that. Yes. Yes. So let's do a little bit of fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. Um, the hardest part of writing a short story is? Starting. <laughs> Amen. Ashe. I want to say my favorite part is also starting, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that makes sense. Because it's just, it's all about getting your butt in the seat, right? Like not just musing yeah. about it, not about just thinking about it or not just like, you know, being sto- writing adjacent, you know, like I've been writing adjacent too many times, you know, like, oh, like, you know, you, you started that first paragraph and, and then you just like, you let that go for like a month, you know, but what, you know, <laughs> so, but like, is the story really starting? Is it really cooking with gas? Yes. And I feel like with the, all the comforts of home, like, like she's got me and I'm hooked and I'm writing and like, it's like that that's my favorite part as well. Like when I really hear that voice in my head, it's like mm-hmm. a clarion bell. It's like magical, like, you know, it's that cotton candy, sweet summer love. It's good. It's all good. So, and I, that's where I, I am right now with that story. So I, it's starting and starting. <laughs> so and really starting, you know? Right. 
Do you have any writing rituals? And also, what's the setup in your writing space? What does it look like? Yeah, it's interesting because like when I think about my like my writing practice, right, it's it, it involves like living, right? So I think the ritual of living and being interesting interested and engaged in the world is part of that ritual is like the part of the process, right? Like I feel like my whole life I spend out there foraging for my fiction, right? You know, so it's just like, I keep running running lists of interesting, you know, character names and idiomatic expressions and weird factoids that I come across in the wild, you know? And I, and I you know, I don't know when it's going to be used, but I, I know at some point it'll make its way into my work. So that's very much part of my kind of like overall writing practice and writing rituals. And, um, as far as my actual, like, when I'm actually on that page with, like, you know, a story like, you know, with the 24, you know, 38 aunts named Comfort, I can't say that I'm very fussy. Like, you know, it just involves me sitting down, you know, like, it's changes sometimes. From, like, I had one particular story which had a lot of a strong hip hop beat to it, you know, so I would play mm -hmm. hip hop music to kind of stay in that kind of rhythm and that kind of musicality. Um, but it changes from story to story, you know, like, like a stumble, a story like the was a liar right did i listen to um you know gospel music at one point yes did i do that every time no so it would change depending on like the the needs of that you know what would get me in that space that day and in terms of my writing setup like you know i've got um it's a mixture like i've got like a bronze sculpture of a cameroonian woman she's like bare-breasted with a harvard basket on her back but she's got i got her decked out in pearls looking flossy so it's like you know so like these like this kind of it like speaks to my themes like you know i love to see women like you know that intersectional identity of black womanhood so she's slossy but hardworking and like you know and native in that kind of way and i've got like little hip-hop informations like every day i'm hustling and i'm bossy you know and then i also have like you know like in this place of honor i've got an image of my grandmother paulina loe nana they called her big and she was big in personality big in stature and she's just like has this huge dynastic clan but like but she had to dream big, you know, very early on and put my mother in school at a time when, you know, education was not universal. It was not like accessible to young girls and that kind of foresight and that vision and her, you know, the kind of joyousness she had in life and the kind of, you know, um, foresight to make sure that all her girl children were educated because she had like many girl children and, and people were saying, oh, that's so sad, you know. That actually, you know, is why I'm here today. So she's there and she looks at me and she smiles. So, mm. Nana, thank you so much just, you know, for this generous conversation. Um, fun, so much fun talking with you. Uh, it's like part two of Miami, but virtual. And thank you for your collection, which is fun to read, but it's also so bold. And that's just really in inspiring to me um, as a writer. And it was just such a delight to read. So thank you so much. Disha, Donnie, Donnie, thank you so much for having me on this platform. You guys are amazing, you know, conversations partners. And I really felt incredibly at home and, and thankful to talk to with, you know, two authors who are making this amazing space for literature in the world and also putting out great literature in the world themselves. I appreciate this. Aww. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. And we will get together again, whether in Miami or <laughs> some other place. Amen to that. I, I'll yes. be there for Miami 2.0, you know. <laughs> Well, 
Well, friends, we've reached the end of Ursa season one. This has been a wonderful experience. We've learned so much about some amazing writers and stories, the craft of writing and storytelling, and about living a creative life. It's been inspiring and thrilling, and even more so to hear from everybody who's joined us on this journey. We are so thankful for all of your support for this show. We'll be back very soon, and we're so excited to keep going with more stories and conversations in season two and beyond. As always, if you'd like to support our work, become an URSA member by going to ursastory.com join. You'll help us keep producing this show and doing it on our terms. Until next time.